Welcome to the Campion College podcast, the official home for audio recordings of college events, guest talks, public lectures, interviews, conferences, and more. Join us now for the 2023 St. Edmund Campion Lecture with Professor Emeritus John Carroll. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here, and I've spent the last 20 minutes walking around your wonderful campus um, and admiring what's happening. And it's particularly nice, I wish I'd brought my Cambridge academic robes, it's particularly nice to see um, an old-fashioned style gathering of the university, which signals to me that this is a serious place. Edmund Campion signals two things to me, both of which are incomprehensible to the modern mind. And I've been into your library and seen the portrait of Edmund Campion. He looks very modern. I mean, he could be one of you um, in his look. Um, Have you had a look at him closely? But his death, of course, we hope and it's extraordinarily unlikely, is not going to happen to any of us, the extraordinary cruelty of that age that could hang, draw and quartered somebody and at at times, I mean, just unbelievable barbaric uh, behaviour, tie someone up, skin them alive, cut out their intestines um, for some minor religious belief or other. One of the masters of my former Cambridge college, um, Nicholas Ridley, was burnt at the stake. He was a Protestant. He was martyred by Catholics. Protestants were martyring each other for the most trivial differences of opinion about one line of the Bible. Catholics were martyring each other during the Spanish Inquisition. This is inconceivable, I think, to the modern mind. We just go blank. And linked to it, I think what's also inconceivable is what sort of faith those people must have had, the intensity of belief that would drive them to that end, knowing almost entirely full well what was going to happen with them if they continued, like Edmund Campion, with with their religious activity. Now, the sceptical modern mind might regard this as fanaticism, someone who's sort of possessed, a sort of case of demonic possession, to have that sort of degree of faith. But I think that would be presumptuous. We just don't know. This is this, that, 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 that was an alien time. And belief today, by contrast, and this is sort of slightly presumptuous of me because I'm not a practicing Christian and never have been, but belief today is, unless the small minority of people who are fanatics, is, is more tepid, more lukewarm, um, is more like the father in Mark's gospel who brings his son to Jesus, the son, The son is suffering from mad fits, he's probably epileptic, and the father's asking Jesus to cure the son, and Jesus says to him, "Um, do you believe? And the father says, and probably many of you in this room know his reply, master, I believe, help my unbelief. This ambiguity, or this, this sort of doubt that is inevitably inbuilt into I think almost all of our perceptions of the world um, is, is a part of the modern, of the modern condition. And I think um, this links with the fact, and 
I'm going to be talking about the, the sort of sociological observation that we live in a post-Christian world. I mean, this might here around here look like a sort of oasis of separate or partly separate from that. It's probably, probably not as separate as many of you think. We live in a post-Christian world. What does that mean? Well, it means that 5% of Australians or thereabouts are going to church regularly, and that includes Muslims. So it's a tiny, tiny minority. The same is true throughout the Western world, apart from the United States. The United States is 20%. I mean, it's larger, but it's still a smallish minority. Even more seriously, and this is particularly um, resonant within these walls, generations are now growing up who don't know anything about Jesus, who don't know anything about his life, who, he's, who he is, who, what he did. For them, the Bible is a closed book. For them, and this is probably the vast majority in our society today, God is a, is, is a word they don't utter, they don't believe in, and they find awkward. The main moral concept that has run through the long Christian era in the West of sin, sinners, sinners be damned, um, is obsolete. We don't use the word sin anymore. I mean, whoever gets called a sinner today, I mean, don't do it. In fact, guilt has replaced has replaced sin. Now the consequence, what is the, the problem? There's a major problem that comes in this, in this context and I would assume too that most of you in this room are wrestling with these problems too. There's a problem that the three great metaphysical questions that absorb all humans in all societies in all times, there are three big questions. There's the origins question, the genesis question. Where do I come from? creation myths in anthropologically studied tribal societies address the creation myth. There's the life question, the second question, how should I live in order to make sense of my life? What should I do with my life to give it sense, if it has any sense, um, which is of course a big modern question. And thirdly, there's the death, the death question, what happens to me when I die, if anything? Now all religions, give answers to these questions. And above all, the death question. I mean, the, the cross is the central symbol of Christianity. It's a death symbol. Why is that? Because the, the teaching, the focus, the belief is at the core on the question of death and linked to resurrection, of course, in, 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 in Christian, Christian teachings. But in a post-Christian society, the answers, the sure answers, the confident answers to these questions have gone. So how do we live today? And if we want to find answers to this, and the Bible is a closed book for most of our fellow citizens. They don't open it. Answers are to be found in the best of literature and creative, the creative imaginations of our culture. Let me talk a little bit about that. They pose the question that, that faces us all today. The great television series, The Sopranos, first 86 episodes, many of you will, will know it. The first episode comes out in 1999, on the threshold of the 21st century. Central figures, Tony, Tony, Tony Soprano, mafia boss, big, violent, many ways a horrible man, but complex, complex. In that first episode, and this prefigures the whole series, a flock of wild ducks lands in his swimming pool. A flock of wild ducks in New Jersey. 
mafia boss's swimming pool. He is enraptured. He thinks it's the most wonderful thing that's ever happened. He, in one scene, in his dressing gown, early in the morning, he wades down into that swimming pool. Now, this is an image straight out of Christian baptism. It's straight out of Renaissance art, picture, picturing the Jesus' baptisms. These images recur right through our culture. Tony wades down. He, he's after rebirth. But the ducks fly away, and they never come back. Tony is so shocked and so devastated. On the edge of his swimming pool, he has a panic attack. He collapses unconscious, the edge of his swimming pool. This is a symbolic death. I mean, it's as if his own soul was flown away with those ducks. He then spends the rest of this 86 episodes of this wonderfully interesting, profound series wrestling with the three big metaphysical questions, trying to find something that will bring enchantment to his life. He's very successful. He makes lots of money. He's a great gang leader. He's quite a good father. He's a sort of good husband, but not. Um, but the magic for him, the magic has gone out, gone out of the world. And he never finds, the ducks never come back. He, it's, it's, a very, it's a sort of dismal, it's a dismal story by the end. The most influential play of the 20th century, Waiting for Godot, comes out in the 1950s. Similar, similar story, two tramps, no meaning in the, for them life is absurd, completely meaningless. They can't be bothered getting up in the morning, they fall into ditches, they can't be bothered standing up, they don't know what the time is. Um, they have no direction whatsoever in their lives. One of them in particular believes that a man called Godot is going to arrive. God built into his name. A man called Godot is going to arrive. And they spend their time waiting for Godot. Godot probably doesn't exist. He's probably a fiction of the imagination. What does the tramp expect when Godot arrives? He expects he's going to be saved. Godot is a saviour, an imagined saviour. There's no reference there in that text at all to what sa saving might mean. There's no, there's no content to that. At the start of the modern period, Shakespeare's Hamlet. I mean, for me, Shakespeare stood on the front veranda of the old Christian culture. You probably don't, won't like me saying this. And he looked out over the modern world. This is 400 years ago. And most important play agreed by almost all critics, Hamlet, the central figure in it, is a sort of charismatic, incredibly intelligent, perceptive, insightful man. Everyone is fascinated by Hamlet. He's a failed saviour. What happens to Hamlet is confronted by the... You remember the three questions? He's confronted by the death question right at the start, in the first act. He, he meets death in the form of his father's ghost. And from that moment on, he's paralysed. He can't move. He can't bring himself to do what he knows he has to do. And he just sees the world as this quintessence of dust. This sort of human life is, 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 is completely worthless. To be or not to be, the most famous speech in the English language, is not about the meaning of life. It's a meditation on suicide. A number of you probably know that. It's about death. The one moving scene in the whole play is when Hamlet holds the skull of the court jester's head, Yorick, in his hand and talks to the skull. Hamlet himself says, my one felicity, my one happiness is death. Not being able to answer the death question, all he can see, Every, his whole life is paralysed. He's an example of what Tolstoy much later will say, if you can't answer the death question, then life becomes meaningless. 
Now, this is the setting for the modern condition within which we all live, whatever we believe. This is the, this is, this is the setting for it. Now, I said we live in a post-Christian culture, but that is not entirely true. That culture, tradition, is something that's deep in the bloodstream, of, in our case, of the West. <clears throat> and deep in the cultural bloodstream of the West are the Christian archetypes. And above all, the saviour archetype. And I've just written a book, The Saviour Syndrome, trying, trying to argue in the, in the context that I've been spelling out with Tony Soprano and Hamlet and Waiting for Godot, trying to spell out that Jesus may be no more for most people who inhabit our world today, forgotten, un obsolete, but he sneaks in sort of through the back door. And we can't escape this fact. Deep inside us, almost all of us in the West, there's a saviour yearning. There's a yearning for a saviour. Um, the great Danish philosopher Kierkegaard said, um, arguably the last great Christian thinker, to my mind at least, when Christ returns, he's going to come looking like the cleaner. Now, this is what I'm trying to um, extrapolate in this book, The, the Saviour Syndrome. And to go even further with the Christian blueprint, I'm, I suggest that the saviour today um, comes in two forms. The individual coming in from the outside, the, the, the saviour from the outside, best represented in the Gospels, in the two church Gospels, Matthew and Luke. The, 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 the stranger who arrives from nowhere, we don't know anything about him, and he saves, he, he, he redeems sins, he takes on the sins of the world, he's a teacher, he's a leader, he, he, he has insight into what matters, um, all of that. He's, he's an outside figure who arrives. The other modern form of saviour is the saviour, or the hope, is the saviour within the individual. And this has resonance, I'd suggest, in Mark and, Luke's, uh, Mark and John's Gospels. Mark's, my reading of, and I've written a book on this, of, of Mark's Jesus. I mean, I'm not a practising Christian, but I take um, Jesus' story very, very ser seriously indeed. It's a very strong presence in my own life. And I don't, it's, it, the unconscious level, I don't know how it works, but I just know it's a very strong presence in my own life. At the core of Mark's story, and it's one of the most brilliant literary pieces in, in, in the whole of Western literature, Mark's Gospel, vastly underrated by many practising Christians. The centre of Mark's Jesus' teaching, is, is, he says this to his followers, he's, he's, he's dancing across the Sea of Galilee in the middle of night and they see him arriving, they think he's a ghost, a phantasm in Greek. And he says to them various things, but the centre, he says two words, I am. The implication, and this recurs then through the rest of the story, the implication is that if you want to know what matters in life, if you want to know what's really important, if you want to know what's going to save you, it's all to do with the I. It's, in, it's sort of in you. And if you want to understand what I'm teaching, you won't find it in doctrine. You won't find it in trying to interpret one episode or another in this story of my life. And in fact, Mark's Jesus is quite brilliant. He keeps under, anyone who suddenly, like Peter, thinks he understands something, Jesus immediately mocks him and sort of, sort of it even says he belongs to the devil, he's so stupid. And it's in the actual Jesus story, the narrative itself, that the teaching of the I am, am comes to life. 
And unless you get into that story, you know, as we all get into the stories that move us, unless you get into the story, uh, you won't find it resonating in yourself or in your, or in your own life. But we, we sort of understand everything through stories. I mean, I don't know if any of you will become interested in this, but Christianity is in such a poor state in the Western world today for one reason, that the, the incapacity of the church is to retell the story in a way that speaks today. Um, one retelling of the Jesus story, which has been brilliantly successful, and this will surprise many of you for me to say it, is Harry Potter. Harry Potter is a, he's a hero, but he's also a saviour figure. And from, given your ages, I think many of you probably know the Harry Potter story pretty well. From about the third book onwards of the seven books, death becomes the central fascination and preoccupation of the narrative and of Harry Potter himself. I mean, the, the, the big baddie Voldemort has got death scripted in French into his name, thief of death, um, stealing from death. Harry becomes more and more, he is the hero, I mean, he saves the world, but he's also a saviour. This is he's one of the external saviours in my category of saviours, coming in from the outside. He becomes a sort of suffering servant in the way that Jesus was. He will throw himself into any situation, however dangerous, to save somebody, even if they're not a friend, to save some creature. His life becomes increasingly solitary ordeal. I mean, he dies in the last book, but he comes back to life. There is a resurrection in the Harry Potter story. He actually even has a resurrection stone, which is part of this strange um, death and rebirth. Now, this is... Harry Potter sold 600 billion books and still rising, not just in the West, but predominantly in the West. Now, J.K. Rowling has done what the Christian churches are going to have to do if they're going to revive. It's taken the Jesus story and it's given it life in a very different, on the surface, a very different form. But maybe not, 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 not so different. This is the sort of imaginative reach that's going to be necessary. Um, and she takes on the death question. The death question is absolutely at the centre of the Harry Potter story. You know, it's talking about Har Hamlet paralysed by death. Harry is not paralysed by death. I mean, he's called the boy who lives, the chosen one. There's all this sort of resonant um, Christian imagery around, around Harry Potter. <clears throat> that brings me to another example of saviours today, uh, the blessed child. The one thing that most people today would martyr themselves for is their own children. And the one, I mean, if we take seriously you know, the depth of belief um, that's engaged in, 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 in how you live, it's the child who, who sits there. And if we live in a rational, scientific, sceptical world, many of those parents would say, oh, well, how did it happen we got together? How did it happen that this child came into existence? Um, we, we happened to meet each other. It was coincidence. We decided to spend a bit of time together. It kept going. Then we decided to get married. And then it happened. We had, maybe we planned to have a child. Maybe we didn't. And then, at the moment of conception, the genetic roulette wheels spinning the millions and millions of genes came together and, and determined the character of this girl or this, this boy. But the moment the child is born, that thinking completely disappears. It's replaced by more like faith style of thinking. It is inconceivable to me that I could live, that life can go on if she or he is no longer, is no longer here. 
And in fact, and parents who have suffered this, many, many will say the worst thing that can happen in life is if one of your children dies before you do. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, um, that Carol loved by children and adults alike. The, the, the child is the little star, the redeemer, tiptoeing into the world. That's the imagery around this. The one part of Christian ritual that is alive in the wider culture is the nativity. And even though all these people don't know, haven't had the foggiest thing about the life of Jesus, the nativity comes alive every Christmas. I think that's purely because of children. It's purely because of the aura that with, with which children move through the lives of their parents and their, and, and their relatives. And they bring then the, all the magic of the three wise men, the star, the shepherds, the star, the, Beth, the, the, the Bethlehem um, cattle shed and so forth to life. If that wasn't there, I think Christmas would die. Well, Christmas would just turn into a profane sort of extended family get-together at the end of the year. Uh, but it doesn't because of the child. The great American writer Cormac McCarthy, who died last week, um, he said once, this was about his son, this is the father speaking, if he, my son, is not the word of God, then God doesn't speak. This is contemporary belief. And I think everyone today understands what Cormac McCarthy's saying. If he isn't the word of God, God doesn't speak. We're talking about what's, 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 what's serious here. Um, I was talking about lukewarm belief before. Um, I give an anecdote myself. 20 years ago, roughly, I was being interviewed on the ABC radio. And I knew the person who was interviewing me, the woman, was a practising Catholic, and I also knew she, she supported the Sydney Swans. Um, we were talking about motivation and what moves people and what's important in life, and then I turned it back on her and I said, um, I assume you went to Mass at the weekend. She said, yes. And I said, I assume you went to see the Sydney Swans at the weekend. She said, yes. And so I said, and this is a bit naughty of me, um, what did you talk about when you came to, came to the office on Monday morning? And she laughed. Of course she talked about the Sydney Swans. That's, that's, that was the passion that really drives her. Now, at this point, we have to be honest about ourselves. That may not be true for some of you in this room, and of course I'm not presumptuous enough to say that it is. But in question, if we're, we're, we're all under the thrall of those three questions, the, the three metaphysical questions. Other potential saviours, probably perhaps the most common today, is the soulmate. That there is another person, and this is not just a romantic fantasy, this, this, this belief continues. There is another person, and he's the one, she's, she's got the magic qualities. Um, that if only I meet that person, then my life will be transformed. There is a sort of redemptive, save, saving possibility in finding this unique, perfect relation. Surveys in America and Australia show that it's still the case that those in their 20s, many of you in this room, even if they're having lots of sexual encounters, they're doing online dating, they're doing, going through all and all of that, most of them still believe at the end of that all, they'll, find, they'll settle down with the one person. They will find the right person. Popular music echoes the same refrain. Now, there's a, this is a hope for a, the saviour here. Another person is a saviour. Now, often, of course, it's deluded, but it's not always deluded. And sometimes it manages to trans, transform itself into a sort of companionate marriage that lasts a lifetime, that sort of engagement. It's another example of 
saviors in our time. Another, the sporting stars occasionally have saviour elements to them. Roger Federer, the tennis player, I think he played with, he was a star, which he was, he was brilliant, he was a master at what he did. But there was a sort of grace and charisma to the way Roger Federer played tennis. And the way he spoke, the way he carried himself, as if he was a sort of shining light. Um, there's something there. I mean, he's not a saviour in the direct, literal, whole sense, but there are elements in his... There's, sort of, there's an inspiring quality to the Roger Federer presence, which is, is one of the ways that we obscurely, in difficult ways today, fumble around to find what is going to give shape and meaning, meaning to our lives. The same is true with football. If we're football fans and we, we're watching a football team finding form, where suddenly men are transformed beyond their normal clumsy selves and do magical things, there's something transcendental, there's something uplifting, there's something connecting with the higher in this. Another example of modern saves are doctors. Um, if you're most people today, if they're feeling sick, whether they're sick in body or in mind, they won't go to the priest or the minister. They'll go to the doctor or the psychotherapist. And if this is, if the situation is really serious, they may well start to find an aura around this particular individual, the doctor, the psychotherapist, um, that is somehow magically, and of course it's not true, going to redeem, going to redeem their lives. Let me switch to internal saviours, because in some ways they're more interesting today. Um, with guilt replacing sin, we, and with the, the death of God for most people, um, the modern world, the modern individual turned inwards and became preoccupied by internal feelings of guilt and anxiety, which were very obscure and very difficult to understand. Hamlet is paralysed by guilt. He hasn't committed any crime. Great writers, Kafka, Dostoevsky, Nietzsche, Freud, write about the presence of guilt in the modern individual. Now there's a hope. Um, this links with, a, with, a, with the, sort of, the sort of sense of an unconscious self. We all have an unconscious self, a sort of, Freud called it the id, or the it is a better translation from his German. We have an it inside us which directs, it not only directs our dreams and scripts our dreams, directs our passions, directs what we like to do, directs what we hate, um, directs what comes to our mind. Um, that great English expression, it occurred to me, um, says it all. What's the it that's doing the occurring? It's something inside you. It's this, de I mean, I, in my book I call it the inner demon in all individuals. Um, the German sociologist Max Weber says the good life requires you to get in tune with the inner fibres of your being, with the inner fibres of your being. With God gone and with us all turning inwards, there's much more pressure placed on finding something in self that will redeem, will redeem a life. The leading candidate in this context is authenticity. I mean, it's often been said we live in the age of authenticity. The belief in if someone's sincere, if they're genuine, if you know, what you see is what you get, if she wears a heart on her sleeve, there's something that redeems the inner, the inner demon, the inner self in, in that sort of life. <clears throat> to give you one example, I suspect the fascination now with Prince Harry and, and Meghan Markle 
the fascination and the weighing up. I mean, the whole of the Western world is weighing up, do we like him or don't we like him? You know, is he, is he a spoiled whinger or is there something, is there an integrity? Is there an authenticity to him? Like there was with his mother. I mean, this is, this is under the shadow of Diana. I mean, one of the, I mean, the most extraordinary funeral of the last 50 years has got to be the, the funeral of Princess Diana because she came to embody this, this sort of, she was a sort of almost a saint of sincerity wearing a heart on a sleeve. I mean, everyone knew she was a neurotic mess. Everyone knew she was profoundly unhappy, but there was an essential genuineness about her. When she approached handicapped victims of, of, of landmines, when she came up to people, there was something, and you know, people who met her all said the same thing about her. She was utterly, utterly genuine, unlike, the rest of the royal family, which is all pretense and mask and formality. She was our princess. She was the queen of hearts. At that point, she is representing to our culture, to our wider world, and I'm reading this sociologically, the value of authenticity or the hope, the hope that authenticity can be, can be redemptive. The American writer William Faulkner has characters who are just completely driven from within themselves. I think something we all know, if we're honest. He has a character, Joe Christmas, gets up in the morning. He doesn't know what he's doing. He gets his razor. He goes out the door. He goes up the hill. He's just driven from within. And basically, that's true for all of us all the time. It's just William Faulkner dramatizes, dramatizes this. Now, this is my searching for savior, the savior syndrome yearnings and quests in the contemporary world. Uh, the most successful form in relationship to this inner saviour is people who find a vocation. They find a life activity, a form of work, a calling, which completely engages them. And it doesn't matter what it is. The content doesn't matter. It, it's it, the inner fibres of your being find the thing, that, if you're fortunate, the thing that suits you. And it may be a memo. You might write a memo and you, you sort of write it and you think, I got that, that's just right, I'm proud of that. There's some sort of deep fulfilment that's almost transcendental, which you know is crazy in rational terms. But we all understand, we all understand this finding some activity, some life activity which is allowed, allows us to project the inner self, this inner demon as I call it, out onto what we do. And that externalizing of the inner self is sort of is sort of redemptive. Now, just to conclude, the, in the terms of what I'm arguing, the good, li the good life to, today requires um, finding or happening across or being lucky enough to encounter the external saviour. And it may not be a person. It might be a book. It might be a, a course. It might be seeing a painting that changes the, the direction of, of a life for that external saviour to interact with the inner self, which in the best of all possible worlds is a sincere and honest inner self. I think the problem for Tony Soprano is that there was nothing in him that could resonate or reciprocate those ducks that flew into his swimming pool. He was inwardly incapable of responding to this sort of divine, this visitation from beyond, this divine visitation into his swimming pool. And as a result, his life is cursed. Um, um, tragic. His life is cursed. And I think I'm going to finish with Tony Soprano. Thank you. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to the Campion College podcast. For more information on our courses, upcoming events, and ways you can financially support Campion College, visit campion.edu.au.